COVID-19 is still around, but that doesn't mean the Army ROTC programs are not there for you. Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at GoArmy.com ROTC. Army ROTC, now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit GoArmy.com slash money for college. You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, this is one of the voices you hear on your radio all summer. And I know you're very excited for our guest today. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. I'm very, very excited. Um, yeah, so we, we had mostly everybody from the fan on. Uh, we've been very, very fortunate. Uh, and, yes, you're indeed right about that. You could listen to him on the fan all summer, uh, making periodic appearances, uh, updating us and giving us some news and information about the New York Yankees. Uh, we're very excited to have him on. I'm really excited to have him on. We're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, he's a Yankees uh, longtime beat reporter for the fan. He is Sweeney Murdy. Sweeney, good morning and welcome to the program. How are you? Good. Joe, Nick, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So let's just get right into it here. When did you decide you wanted to pursue a career in sports? Was it before college? Was it when you were at Penn State? When did you know you wanted to pursue the path of sports as a profession? Well, well let's, let's go back because I'm in radio and I happen to cover sports. Uh, I always tell people that if my radio station decided tomorrow to be a country music station, I'd either be in country music or I'd be unemployed. So, um, yeah. you know, you've got to remember that, um, you know, what side of that line you're on. I always wanted to be on the radio and cover sports. Um, I found that probably, I found that passion early. I was 12, 13 years old when I was on the radio for the first time because of the opportunity I had at, in my school district in Middletown, Pennsylvania, we had uh, an FM radio station that uh, we did, you know, it was full service. We did music and news and, and then and we broadcasted uh, our school's football and basketball games. And that's kind of how I started on the path to recognizing that, you know, that the that that was a career because I had also long before that started listening to Phillies games on the radio and you know, the voices of my summer were Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn and Chris Wheeler and Andy Musser, uh, legendary announcers in Philadelphia. And, you know, I got their games on the radio. And by the time I, I kind of put two and two together when I started being on the radio and recognized that I heard those guys I said, well, that's a that's a job. That's a career. Baseball was always my favorite sport. So um, that was um, that's kind of what started me on that path. Absolutely. It sounds like a very similar story to a lot of a lot of our guests. Then it's incredible that you know, you're able to pursue the path you wanted. Now you go to Penn State, which is one of the, the top schools and especially sports wise. But what did you study there and, and what activities did you get involved in in order to you know, help yourself for, for post-college life? Well, I enrolled in uh, the School of Communications, and it's grown immensely since I was there. I mean, it's, you know, it's over 30 years now since I started there. Um, so it's, it's been a while. And when I got there, they, hadn't, they were just really kind of starting to develop what they were going to do professionally for broadcasting. 
And so I, I majored in broadcasting, but I worked actually because of the experience I had working really throughout, you know, from seventh grade through 12th grade, working on the radio, I was able to get a job at one of the local radio stations in town uh, as, as a freshman. And I would do scoreboard updates on Friday nights for high school football. I would help produce Saturday coverage for them. Of, you know, I mean, wall-to-wall Penn State football coverage on Saturdays. And I would help work on that. Um, and I got a lot of great experience doing that. So um, that was my main activity was, you know, I, I, I like to th- remind people when they, they want to know what it takes to, to kind of get into this. It does take a little bit of sacrifice on, on one major part. When I was working in college, I used to work Friday nights and all day Saturdays. You know, you're a college student, you know, Fridays and Saturdays are, you know, that's, that's valuable real estate, right? You go on to go out and have fun with your friends. Um, I had some time for that, but I also made time to work and, uh, and pursue what I was doing. Um, and it's an, it's an important thing for people who want to work in sports. I, I like to tell them, listen, think about when sports happens. Sports happens at night and it happens on the weekends. So if you're going to want to cover sports or announce sports or do something like that, you're going to be working nights and weekends. And, uh, and it's going to be different than what your friends are doing. So that's a little bit of a sacrifice you have to make. But, uh, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to, you know, really pursue that all four years I worked at that radio station. And uh, after my junior year uh, of college, I got an internship at WFAM and that changed my life. Really honestly changed my life. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Uh, I had friends who, a lot of friends who have gone to Penn state um, and uh, my co-partner and my co-host over there, uh, he interned at, at WFAN in 2012. Yeah. So uh, a lot of experience there. Uh, how did you get the internship? Wrote a letter, you know, I mean, did the old fashioned way, you know, in uh, 1990, I, I wrote a letter to Eric Spitz, um, one of my classmates, and I forget which class, it was a, uh, like a mass comm theory or something like that. One of my classmates had, uh, had interned at WFAN the year before, and I, I, I forget how it came up in conversation, but I was looking for places that, I was looking for radio stations that broadcasted uh, Major League Baseball. And, you know, there's 30 of those, right? They brought the flagships uh, for the baseball. Actually, back then there were 26 of them. Um, uh, flagships for Major League Baseball uh, teams. So I, and I eliminated a bunch of them. I basically, you know, went, looked at Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New York, and Baltimore, and, and decided to try to get an internship at one of those radio stations. One of my classmates had interned at WFAN uh, just that summer that I had, I had met him in that fall. And uh, so he told me who to talk to. And uh, I sent a letter to Eric Spitz, who was at the time he was the executive producer. I got a call back for an, in- for an interview. Uh, I went over spring break in March of 91 to the interview and got a call back several weeks later um, offering me the internship. So I went up in May of 91 through August of 91 or into August of 91 was my internship. And I, I enjoyed the experience and, you know, the biggest thing I think I, the biggest thing I think I got out of it was that I learned that I could work in that environment. Like I'm not from a big, I'm not from a big, I'm not from New York. I was from a very small town in Pennsylvania and, you know, a lot of it, you know, the cliche stuff of trying to figure out if you can make it in the big city, you know, I, I learned that summer that 
all the things that I had learned in radio and was doing in radio, I could apply that and work at a, at a big radio station, a major radio station and, you know, feel like I belong there. And that's probably the most important thing I got out of that was, you know, it's, it's a lot like somebody who gets, you know, a, a minor league baseball player gets called up to the major leagues. You know, you don't know if you're going to be able to hit big league pitching, right? Well, once you get a couple of hits and you get a little confidence, you're like, you know what, I can make it this level. And, and what I learned, that's kind of what I learned in that internship was that I could, you know, I could survive in that environment. And Eric Spitz became the assistant program director and later the program director. And now he's one of the VPs at Sirius XM. Uh, he's still one of my closest friends and mentors. And, uh, you know, I mean, just offering me the internship uh, 30 years ago changed my life. Were, were you familiar at all before the internship with the hosts at WFN? And did you find yourself starstruck at any point when you started meeting people? I don't know if you read this. I probably mentioned this in some interview somewhere. I had no idea about anybody at WFAN. Mm -hmm. Probably why you're asking me that. Um, I don't recommend that as strategy. I'd never listened to the radio station. I mean, it's not, remember, I wasn't walking around with an iPhone and streaming the radio.com app. I lived outside the area. I'd never spent more than like a couple of days in New York City. And the only thing I knew about them was that they broadcast Mets baseball. And and that they were an all sports radio station. I had no idea what that meant. You know, all sports had been invented only three or four years earlier, this sports format. And right. it didn't exist where I was, where I, where I grew up, sports talk was a show at six o'clock at night on the news stations, uh, on the news and talk stations, they would have on the AM dial, they would spend an hour or two at six or seven o'clock at night and call that their sports talk show. And the same guy who did the morning sports reports and the afternoon sports reports, giving you all the scores and the stories was the guy that did sports talk shows. And then he would call the games that they were broadcasting. So they were all like one and two man operations. Uh, I had no idea what it was all about, but I saw, I remember looking it up after talking to my friend in class and uh, they were, they broadcast Mets games. They were all sports. All right. Yeah. Sign me up. I have no idea what that's about. I walked into the building had never heard of Imus, knew nothing about him. I mean, he's a legend, right? Uh, but by that time already, <laughs> never heard of him. When Mike and one of my first days in the newsroom, when Mike Francesa and Chris Russo walked out of the studio during a break, I recognized Mike because he did college basketball on CBS. Yep. And I'm like, oh, wow, I know that guy. Uh, that's Mike Francesa from CBS. Otherwise, I knew nothing about anybody or anything at that radio station. And like I said, I'm fortunate it worked out for me. Um, it's not a strategy I recommend when you're job hunting and going after something like that. Well, 28, 28 years now at WFAN. Incredible. I started, yeah, I interned in 91. I started back in 93. And um, I left briefly for a year. I spent a year at WIP in Philadelphia to gain more experience as an on-air update anchor. And uh, that was from 97 to 98. And then just, you know, uh, came right back. But yeah, pretty much every year since, uh, since 93. So Nick and I always speak about this, but I think WFAN has a really, really strong digital platform. Now, uh, from the time that you got there up until now, and, and Nick just said it encompasses, well, basically 28 years, uh, I want to ask you about uh, a lot of the technological differences that you've seen 
through the years. What were your duties uh, when you first got there uh, and, and really probably the first five to 10 years? Uh, and then how did that shift uh, when the, 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 the scope of digital media changed and there became more of a, uh, an internet platform and people started consuming content in that way? Yeah, um, well, my, my job changed. It's probably easier to describe it to you in my time as a Yankee reporter um, because there's still, like I started in 2001, although like people had internet, you know, we didn't have a big digital footprint then. Um, we were still mostly driven on telephones and, and actual audio tape. Um, I, would, I would record interviews and feed them over a phone line in real time. So if I had 40 minutes worth of audio that I recorded at camp that day, it would take me 40 minutes to send it to the radio station. Um, you know, now it's, you know, copy it onto your, copy it onto your uh, desktop, attach it to the email, off it goes. Pretty easy. Um, it, it saves a lot of time and, and that's changed a lot of things. People's access to information was different. You know, if you wanted to know the Yankees lineup, you either had to wait until 7.05 or you had to listen to the radio station. If they, like, if I happened to be on that day, I would, you know, they'd say, what's the lineup today? Have you seen it? And I would tell them, you're not looking it up on Twitter. Right. Not happening. It didn't exist. Um, so yeah. the access to real-time information, things like that, it's, it's changed things a little bit. You're not relying on me anymore as much. I mean, maybe you are, but it's on Twitter. And there are, you know, all my other uh, friends who do this job for the other outlets are all doing the same thing. You're getting all the little transactional details and all the other, you know, little newsy things you're getting instantly from everybody. So um, I think my role has transitioned a little bit more to, you know, providing some of that, but also analyzing it more and giving it a little spin and giving it a little context because, you know, that's something that's still, you know, that's still valuable even if you get one piece of information, like, okay, this guy is injured. Okay, what does that mean? And, and you kind of start to run through all the different things. And, you know, those are the kinds of things that have kind of changed a little bit, as opposed to just providing the raw information these days. Now it's a lot of context and on multiple platforms because of all the digital access that you're talking about. Absolutely. And big part of digital here is, of course, your podcast, 30 with Murdy, which is an awesome show. And that's, you know, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, you know, while you're talking about the digital stuff real quick, are you encouraged if you have, you know, breaking news or something to either A, call into the, the sh a show that's on or B, tweet it out? What it, what it, and how do you, you know, find that fine line between should I break it on Twitter versus give it to the station? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, it, it depends on that, what it is and where you are in the day and stuff like that. Um, I mean, if it's huge news that I've got, I mean, I'm picking up the phone and calling the radio station. If it's, um, you know, and even, and it really depends on what they're doing, like what show is on and what they're doing at the time. You know, it's um, a lot of times you tweet it out, you know, to get it out there. Um, because, you know, what used to happen was you'd call in something on the radio station and people who ran the news, who ran, excuse me, who ran the newspapers, who ran the news wires, they'd all be listening to our radio station. And so anytime news came in, They'd say, wow, 
WFAN is reporting this and it would kind of kick things into motion. Um, you know, that kind of, and, and you'd be the only one who have it for a long time. If you had, you know, 20 years ago, if you had a scoop, it was yours for a long time. Now it's yours for about five seconds and it just gets kind of lost in the shuffle as everybody jumps on board. So now it's, it almost feels like, I don't know if I have a hard and fast rule with it, you know, but I mean, most of what you do is on Twitter nowadays and you're, um, I think that's kind of where, you, where it kind of starts. And then if it's really something that needs more discussion in the moment and there's the space and time to do it on the radio station at that moment, then you, you know, you pick them up the phone and call them. So, I mean, you hit the jackpot here in the sense that you cover probably the most well-known professional sports team on the planet outside of maybe the Cowboys or maybe even like the Lakers or something. Um, and you could even throw in some team like uh, like maybe Manchester United there across the pond. Um, but you certainly hit the jackpot here. Uh, the Yankees are always relevant, whether they're good or whether they're 500, because I can't remember a time where they were bad since I was born. Uh, very privileged Yankee fan over here. Uh, but have you ever, in your time covering the team, ever received uh, pushback in any way when you did have a scoop or a piece of news uh, that you had that you wanted to get out there, but maybe somebody else or maybe a power that be didn't necessarily want uh, pieces of that information leaking out. Uh, so how, how does that you work that balance between uh, the people that you're getting your information from uh, and the people uh, that you're working with and your superiors at the station? Yeah. I mean, I, I've never, I've never had any pushback from anybody at the radio station and saying, why did you report this? Or, you know, a lot of times, why didn't you have this? <laughs> you know, because you're competing with all these other people, and uh, you're trying to you're trying to get the information. No, I, I I can't recall an instance where somebody said, you know, why did you put this out there? This puts us in a bad spot. I mean, that's um, I mean, you you work for whatever information you can get, and if you trust the people that you're getting it from, then then you then you move forward with it. Um, you know, I sometimes it takes. Sometimes it takes a while for the actual event to catch up, you know, um, for people to acknowledge the story that you've gotten um, and, and to acknowledge it officially. I mean, I think that happens with everybody, but um, yeah, I mean, as long as, as long as you have, you feel like you have good information and the, the people that you got it from or people that you trust, then, then there's really, for, for me, there's, there's no other, uh, you know, uh, no other thing I have to worry about there. I want to take it back here to the end of your internship. How did you have the discussion with Eric Spitz to, you know, come on, on board as, as a staff member? I'm assuming you started by cutting tape and then maybe being a board operator, but what was that process like for your transitioning into, uh, you know, part-time and then full-time with WFAN? Well, um, you bring up a good point, Nick, that I just think I should probably, you know, explain it for as people that are trying to get into the business. This is a business that's different than most where you're going to be offered part-time opportunities a lot. And uh, uh, it's, it's different than, you know, you know, I had, I had a roommate who was an accounting major and, you know, he's, he's got a, he's been recruited for a full-time position at this amazing starting salary at 22 years old. Uh, I had roommates who were engineering majors who had job offers in their hand before they graduated and were preparing to move as soon as graduation hit. And, you know, these amazing salaries while I'm looking for hourly 
part-time work um, to before something gets going. I actually, because I didn't live in New York, um, I didn't, you know, um, either seek out or get any part-time opportunities at FAM. After graduation, I actually stayed, I didn't have any full-time offers. I stayed in the uh, Middletown Harrisburg area and worked at uh, three different radio stations there, uh, finding part-time hours to fill out the, um, to fill out the week. And, you know, the three different part-time jobs filled out my week plenty. Um, it was just hard to, you know, hard to manage it a little bit. And, and after about eight months in the spring of 93, I got a call back, still the winter of 93, I got a call saying that there was an opening um, for a producer on the overnight show. And they wanted to know if I was interested in applying for it. Um, they were shifting some things around. Um, I think it, it was actually, it was Eddie Scazzeri was, was the overnight uh, producer with Steve Summers. And Eddie had done it for a long time and he was transitioning to a, a, a you know, daytime job, you know, something more easier on his life. And um, so they were looking for somebody to fill that spot. And I, I was in consideration for it and got the job. And uh, so I got, I was lucky enough to start there as a full-time employee. It was, it was late nights, it was low pay. Um, and it was, you know, it was challenging at the time, you know, um, for what it was. I mean, I was 22 years old when I moved back to New York and uh, I wasn't making a lot of money and had never lived in the city for a long period of time and, or on my own there. So um, yeah, there was, there were a lot of challenges that early, but you know, luckily the job was something where I could really just keep focusing on. And as I, as I made my way through that, I was able to, you know, kind of learn more and more each time and they gave me more responsibility along the way and, and kind of moved my way up the ladder there. So which hosts did you produce? And then, you know, what was the transition or conversation like in order to be able to get the opportunity to do on-air anchoring? My first job was producing for Steve Summers. Um, that was in the, uh, basically the winter into spring of 1993. By that fall, there was more um, you know, juggling of our producing roster. And I moved up to the evening shift, which was basically the six to 12 show, basically after Mike and the Mad Dog um, till midnight before Steve Summers, who was at uh, midnight at the time. So it involved a lot of game broadcasts and it involved the hosts who filled in around it, which at the time were Howie Rose, Susan Waldman, Ed Coleman, Ian Eagle, Bill Daughtry, um, Chris Moore, several others. So I worked on that shift for really um, almost four years. Um, and along the way, I would get occasional like Christmas night, Christmas Eve update shifts and, you know, New Year's Eve update or some weird overnight random weekend, you know, filling in on updates. Um, and that was kind of my way to, you know, their way of kind of, you know, easing me in and trying me out and, and letting me get my own air chops together again, because I mean, that was my goal all along, but when I got, when I didn't have a full-time job and I got offered a full-time job as a behind the scenes guy, I took the full-time job as a behind the scenes guy. Um, 
And so I, I focused a lot on that. As a, you know, you get a few reps here and there as an update guy. And then in the summer of 1996, Eric Spitz was going to be one of the producers for Westwood One's Olympics coverage from the summer games in Atlanta. He had already done a couple of other Olympics uh, for that group. And so he got to pick his crew and I went with him. He got to pick part of his crew and I went with him uh, as a, as a producer and uh, what you call a newsroom tape op, you know, um, you know, cutting audio highlights. So when I, when I did that, I worked for about three and a half weeks in the summer Olympics in Atlanta with some of the top broadcasters from around the country. And as I worked with them, I just, I watched them work and I listened to what they did. And after I'd been producer now for about three and a half years, I said, you know, this is like, I can do this. Like I had, and it wasn't, I don't think it was in a cocky way or even a condescending way of any kind. I just, I just felt like in my mind, somebody who's working at a network level and is a nat, uh, these national broadcasters, I had a certain image in my mind of what they did and how they did it. And as I watched them do it, I said, yeah, I know I can do that. You know, I, I, that's, I can do it. So when we got back from the Olympics in 96, I had kind of started to, I, I told the, my bosses there, it was Eric Spitz and it was Mark Chernoff. And I said, listen, I, I, I need to pursue an on-air job. I'm, I'm ready now. And um, they perfectly understood that. And it took a while, you know, we, um, it took until the following spring, following summer, actually, um, when I finally ended up uh, landing a job with their help at WIP in Philadelphia. And so that's the summer of 97. By summer of 98, there was another opening at FAN and uh, Sam Ryan was actually doing the overnight updates and she was moving to her first TV job, her first full-time TV job. And so I came back and took over the overnight update slot at FAN. And that was my first, that was, you know, WIP was my first full-time on-air job. Now back at FAN, 12 months later, I was, I was back as a full-time on-air guy after having spent four plus years there as a producer, uh, plus my time as an intern. So that was the beginning of my on-air career at FAN. And uh, I stayed there two and a half years until the I switched over to the Yankees in the in, uh, spring training of 2001. Absolutely. What an incredible path there. Great story. Now, you mentioned working uh, nighttime shifts, uh, 6 to 12. I got to ask you how that was the spring of 1994. You must have been really busy cutting a ton of audio. 94 was great. I mean, you know, the thing I remember was because, I mean, you're talking about uh, April, May, June is the Knicks and the Rangers are in the playoffs and both go into the finals and the Rangers win the Stanley Cup and the Knicks lose in game seven. But basically there was a point in time, like every, every day in May and June, like one or one of them was playing like every night. And what I vividly remember is the sound of the radio station from morning to night, because, you know, I miss the morning was six to 10 AM and he'd do his thing. But then at 10 AM, you start talking about last night's Knicks game, let's say. And there's a lot of talk about that all the way up until early afternoon when all of a sudden it shifts over to, okay, tonight's big, big Knicks game. And then that takes over all the way through the night and early the next morning, then in the same cycle happened. 
Knicks into Rangers, Rangers and the Knicks constantly for, you know, I guess it's got to be a good six weeks, seven weeks probably. And it was, it was phenomenal to work under that. I was, I mean, and I was just in the newsroom, you know, I wasn't at any of the games. I wasn't broadcasting them. I was working in the newsroom and, um, you know, cutting Knicks highlights, cutting Rangers highlights, you know, Mateau, Mateau, Mateau. I was in the newsroom. I vividly remember sitting at a newsroom tape machine, making sure I got that highlight just right uh, to replay because it was, it was such a big moment. You know, and then a couple of weeks later, in the middle of all that, the O.J. Simpson thing happens. And so, I mean, it was, it, news, newsroom was active. It was an active newsroom back then. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty fun. I'm sure the late 90s were a lot of fun with those Yankees runs and that, uh, that dynasty that they well, I got to be on the air then, too. Cause remember, like, yeah. I came back to FAN in the summer of 98, and I was, my job was overnight updates. So, you know, that I was, you know, and we were still in a period of time where, you know, without, you know, constant everywhere internet and without mobile devices, right. you were turning on the radio to when hear what happened. Right. And after the games, and if you're a Yankee fan, you're obviously watching the games, you're listening to the games, but still, there's a still large portion of a sports audience that tuned in to hear what was going on, hear the interviews and sound bites, things like that. And my job every night was in the fall of 98, 99, 2000, I was, I was on the air after one of those World Series games, putting together the updates and, you know, recapping the games. And, you know, that was kind of, listen, when I was like 14, that's what I wanted to do, man. That's, you know, I, I, I grew up listening and watching people give me the news, give me the sports news. You know, things have evolved because sports talk is a different thing. And as we talked about, it's about analysis and things like that. But when you first started, like the sports guys told you what happened and they had a way of telling you the story of what happened. Even if you knew the score, they still told you and showed you what happened and how it happened. And that was what I wanted to do. So here I am, you know, um, and even still, as, as I do what I do now, I'm, I grew up wanting to be on the radio and talk about baseball. Well, I, I now work at the biggest radio station and talk about the most famous baseball team. I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't know how much higher I don't, I don't know where the higher ground is at this point. Well, you went higher because you started doing the writing, which kind of incorporated both into what you were doing. And to me, Sweeney, I think you're a revolutionary because when I was in college, right, 10 years ago, and I was studying communications, uh, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I got there from, from everybody who was surrounding me was you have to learn how to be versatile because the industry is changing. You have to adapt. You have to be able to do a little bit of everything, which incorporates doing some writing. You know, you need to be familiar with the potential to be on the, the radio or, or, or television. Uh, and you need to do, know how to do stuff behind the scenes, right? So- Five tool player. Yeah, you need to be a five tool player now. And, and you, uh, you know, of all people, were one of the very first five tool players that were out there who gotten to incorporate your skill set into a little bit of everything, right? So, um, so that's take a, that's a crazy compliment. Thank you. I, I mean, it's the truth. You know, I mean, I think 20, 30 years ago, people were going to school with the idea of I'm going to be on the radio. 
and there was no other thought yeah, of, of anything else. I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to be a, a, an anchor. I'm a sports anchor and I'm going to anchor, you know, the 11 o'clock news for ABC or, or CBS or, or what have you. Right. Uh, you went in thinking like, okay, I'm going to work behind the scenes or I'm going to do play by play and I'm going to do announcing. Now you see that kind of incorporated into to, to everything that people are doing. Right. You start one way, you know, you go into one field, uh, you went into one job, maybe you don't like it. Right. But now you have the opportunity to pivot. You know, that's something that you did in 2001. That's something that mostly everybody is doing now, right? So, uh, so well, yes, that is a compliment to no, you. No, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy, incredible compliment that I don't think I've ever heard in that particular manner. So thank you for that. Um, but I think, you know, it all comes back to where I work and how the media has, um, as a whole has evolved. I still work at the same radio station I started at 28 years ago. It's just that, you know, the responsibilities have changed along the way and, and you kind of have to move along with it. Our radio stations had to adapt. Um, I moved from a, uh, a studio role to a field reporting role in 2001 covering the Yankees. And that's afforded me a number of these other opportunities. Um, it's, it's helped me get into some TV stuff. Um, and when, when we expanded our, our website, to you know, kind of keep up with the times, it forced me to write more, and and I and I always listen. I always enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing papers when I was in high school and when I was in college. And you know, if there was a subject that that really um, that I was into, I enjoyed writing those. It's and when you put your reports together, there's a lot of writing involved there too. It it should you know, depending on your what exactly your format is, you should have a lot of extemporaneous and ad lib ability and things like that. But I also think there's a place to format stuff to the idea of, okay, even if you want it to be off the cuff, you have to say to yourself, first, I'm going to talk about this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do that. And kind of you know, rough script and Get running this fall at Dunkin' with $2 medium iced coffees from 2 to 6 p.m. Try any of Dunkin's delicious iced coffee, like their signature original blend. Or treat yourself to mocha, caramel, or the fall favorite, pumpkin. Always freshly brewed, made just the way you like it. Make time for happy hour and enjoy a $2 medium iced coffee from 2 to 6 p.m. Washington, D.C. runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. Get running this fall at Dunkin' with $2 medium iced coffees from 2 to 6 p.m. Try any of Dunkin's delicious iced coffee, like their signature original blend. Or treat yourself to mocha, caramel, or the fall favorite, pumpkin. Always freshly brewed, made just the way you like it. Make time for happy hour and enjoy a $2 medium iced coffee from 2 to 6 p.m. Washington, D.C. runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. And it helps me, me at least, it helps me keep my thoughts together and formulate and move it along smoothly. It always sounds better when I have some rough format or something roughly scripted out. Um, so that's where the writing comes in. And it's not just like, I enjoy writing pieces, writing like little magazine or website articles. Um, but I get, I you know, I enjoy writing like little scripted material for myself too. And that's another little, little thing, a piece of advice here for people. It's so much is in the writing. And you know, you know what I really, even just recently have really started to understand it so much more. Do you guys watch um, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld? Have you guys ever seen that? 
I do. I've watched most of the episodes. I don't know if Nick has, but well, and if you guys have, and if anybody out there has, it's what I really take out. It's Jerry Seinfeld talking process with all these stand-up comedians, and comedic actors, and when you listen to them talk about what they do, you understand that. When you're watching them perform, they sound brilliant because they're just up there talking. And it sounds like all these wonderful, funny things and, and well-crafted, intelligent things just come off the top of their head. That's the performance side of it. But they've written and rewritten and recrafted and tweaked and done everything till it fits perfectly so many times. And it comes out of their mouth so well because they've rehearsed it and gone over it so many times. And that's the performance part of it. But it's all in the writing everything is in the writing. And when I think about like what we do, talking about, talking about sports, we're performing to a degree for an audience. So, you know, it's, you need to have some sort of an idea about what you're gonna say and how you say it so that it sounds interesting, informative and entertaining. And I haven't watched like those in a while, but you know, when I was, Probably because I haven't traveled anywhere. It's like, you know, I don't sit at home and watch them. <laughs> but um, when, I was, when I was watching those, one guy after another, it all just kept hitting back to me. Like their process is all about getting an idea and, and making it perfect. And I think a lot of times we don't have time to make an idea perfect. When you're cranking stuff out every day and a lot of it's kind of on the, a lot of it has to be on the fly but there has to be a certain amount of thought and process and writing involved. And that's why, like when I, you know, when I give advice to people in, in classes, you know, write, you guys all want to be on TV. You guys all want to, you know, have podcasts, be on the radio, whatever you want to do. You still have to write, you know, because there are very, very few people in this world who can just sit behind a microphone or in front of a camera and just go without any thought to it whatsoever. I mean, it's, so I, I think that's, that's one of the biggest things I like to get across to people about it. So in, in 2001, the Yes Network launches. Susan leaves her role with WFAN to join Yes Network. So what was the process like for you to get that Yankees reporter role with WFAN? Sorry, I just need to grab another water. Hold on. I'm sorry. No, no problem. <laughs> wow. Or we're making you talk too much here, I think. No, or... it's just my fun. <laughs> um, well, actually, there was a little transition in there because in in the summer of 2000, Susan started to do a, a talk show on our station while she was still covering the Yankees. She did the 10 to 1 show with Jody McDonald. And they were they were letting her do both things through that 2000 season. And, and then Susan, you know, uh, transitioned to the full, to the talk show full time in 2001. She was still doing some TV work covering the Yankees at the time that was MSG. Yes. Network hadn't launched yet. So 2001 was the last year of the MSG contract. Susan would do some TV stuff for them and they'd do the 10 to one talk show daily for us. So we were breaking in a new beat reporter. And so I won't bore you with the process of it, but I got that job and um, I took over that. Susan was still doing the talk show. And then the following year in 2002, she went over to Yes um, and did the clubhouse reporting. She was the clubhouse reporter there for the first three years uh, of Yes. So 
that's the timeline of it, but I forgot your question. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, just I mean, you, you, like you said, I just want to know the process there. You don't want to bore us with it. Oh, details. well, I mean, really, uh, well, okay. Well, what happened was in the summer of 2000, I was, I had been, um, it was now going to be two plus years of doing overnight updates. And I, you know, I wanted to see what else there was for me at the station. So I asked for a few different things. I remember sitting down at Mark Chernoff's office early one morning after one of my update shifts. So this is probably like, you know, quarter to six in the morning. And I this is probably, I want to say it's probably like June of 2000 or July of 2000. I said, listen, I don't know what you have planned here, but there's a couple of things I'd really like to, you know, put in front of you and say, you know, you know, get your, your thoughts on it um, that I'd like to try. Um, I said, you know, Joe Beningo was our overnight host. I said, I said Joe's going to be taking some vacation later this summer. I know you're having, sometimes you have, you know, trouble filling those slots or looking like, I'd be interested in hosting. If you can find somebody else to fill in the updates for me, you know, I, I can, I'll host for a week or, or whatever it is. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I said, you know, Ed Coleman was doing Mets Extra. And I know Eddie usually likes to take like a week off somewhere in August or so. I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to host Mets Extra. I'd like to, uh, to fill in for him uh, when that happens. This is okay. He wrote, wrote it down. Um, and, I, and then I said, and now that Susan's doing the talk show, I don't know what you're going to do with the Yankees next year, but if you're going to make a change, I just want you to know that I'd be interested in that. And he said, oh, really? Oh, okay. And I saw him write it down. Like, I remember that reaction. Like, like he hadn't, it, like, it was like, oh, you're, you are interested. Oh, okay. Um, if I hadn't said anything, you know, I, you wouldn't have it. <laughs> all right, that's a good lesson to, uh, you know, our young listeners and college listeners. Like you gotta, you have to speak up for yourself. Yeah. I, th I think, yeah. And, and there's, uh, to me, there are a lot of different ways to go about it. To me, they're like the way I, I, I always wanted to make sure that I did the job that I was given very well. And it's one piece of advice I give to people like, listen, you're going to get an entry level job somewhere. And it's not, you know, you're not going to walk in and get to do play by play for the Yankees, even though that might be what you want to do in, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is. Um, but whatever job you're given, you need to do well so that whoever is evaluating you and maybe thinking you for other jobs knows that, you know, what your work ethic is and how you handle it. Um, you know, like I tell people all the time, I say, I tell college students all the time, I say, listen, to be very blunt about it, if you suck at the job I give you, why should I give you a better one? So I was, you know, I was focused on doing my job, doing my overnight updates and trying to do them as best as I could. And after a little while, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm ready for more responsibility. I'm ready to do more things. Same thing happened when I was producing and wanted to get back on the air. You know, I, I focused on the job I was given. And then when I, I thought I was ready, I, I said something to somebody. You know, um, they're not always just going to come to you and just, you know, they're not just going to pick, pick you out of a crowd and say, hey, do you want to host a show? Um, you do have to be aggressive. But like I like to caution people. Like, I don't like when people are obnoxious about it either. You know, I, I don't know that there's, you know, you know, I don't know how I would handle if I was in a decision-making process, 
uh, a 20 year old kid who walks in and thinks he can host afternoon drive for me. Maybe he can, because there are some of those people and some of those very successful people have that type of personality and they're very confident right away. And they think they can do that job. And maybe they can, maybe I wasn't that type of person. I know I wasn't that type of person. I know I needed to, you know, I needed my, my 500 bats in a ball and my 500 bats in double a, and I needed to keep moving up that system. And there are a lot of successful people in this business who know right away and have a great deal of confidence in their ability and are, and are, and are good enough to, to be able to do that. And maybe they, you know, they have a different process and different way of doing it. I can just tell you what, what I've done and, you know, um, they're, it's just the way I look at it. And if I'm giving advice to somebody, I, I tell people, you know, your work ethic is what the people hiring are going to look at. You know, we all, we all know something about sports, right? We all, you know, you're not going to impress me with how much you know about sports, but it's how you do your job. How do you go about it? You know, are you, are you prepared? Are you there? Are you there all the time? Are you, are you putting in the time? Are you putting in quality work? That's the kind of thing that I think people look for. So what was it like your first time walking into the Yankees clubhouse and then of course spring training? How did you, you know, try to build those relationships with the players and were there any nerves there trying to figure out how you're going to, how am I going to do this job? Uh, I'm walking into these professional, this professional baseball player setting and these people, they're not used to me. I'm a new guy. I need to make these relationships. Yeah. I mean, I basically kind of took it like that and said, I wasn't trying to be anybody's best friend overnight. You know, I walked in and, you know, the Yankees just won three straight world series. They're the, they're the Kings of the world. And I'm not, I'm not going to walk in and, and pretend that I'm Bernie Williams, Derek Jeter, Paul O'Neill, Mariano Rivera, Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit. I'm not going to be their best friend overnight. Right. Um, I had a long game in mind and I just said, listen, I'm, I just went around to introduce myself to people and just did my job every day, you know, and tried to, and you, you tried to get through today. Okay. Do your job today. And let's see what happens. When, um, when I got out of college, I, I told you, I worked at about three different radio stations in Pennsylvania. One of them was WHP uh, in Harrisburg AM radio station. And my news director there was getting Bill Richardson and Bill had a great way of like, making sure that you took pride in what you did, but, you know, not letting you take it too seriously or give you a heart attack, you know? And uh, he would tell me, listen, listen, it's just radio. Okay. If you screw up, just come back and do it again tomorrow. <laughs> and um, like that, that was an, I took an offshoot of that into my daily Yankees coverage. Okay. I need to do this today. I can't worry about, you know, what's happening beyond that. And, like, let me just do this today. And then when I'm done with this today, I'll come back tomorrow and I'll do it again tomorrow. Um, I still remember like kind of halfway through that first season, people asking me, Hey, that this congratulations. You know, this is, you know, big step, big job. What's so what's next for you? What's next. I haven't even done this yet. Like <laughs> I just started this. Crazy. I don't know what's next. And I, the answer was nothing because I'm still doing it, right? The answer, <laughs> 20 years later, I'm still doing it. So the answer is nothing is next. Um, but, like, but to me, it was just the idea of like, it was just an offshoot of that idea of, you know, hey, listen, just come back and do it again tomorrow. And that was how I had to 
figure out what I was doing because, you know, the players are smart. They're always looking around, you know, they, they, people in baseball like to evaluate talent, right? We talk about scouts and like even hitters, they, they, they watch pitchers, right? They study pitchers. They study what they throw, when they study little mannerisms about them. Pitchers study hitters. I think it goes for people too, right? You're always studying people and how, you know, you know, how you get along with this guy or that guy or what happens. So what I think happened is I just went about my job every day the way that I, I wanted to do it. And as day after day and month after month and year after year went on, they saw who I was, what I was about. And that's how I developed my relationships with people. That's how, you know, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough that my work is on a radio station that is a pretty big place, you know, so the people have access to it. So they can not only see how I work, but they can hear what I do. And, you know, the, how you go about your work and the work you produce, you know, people, enough people pay attention to that. I think it, you formulate an idea of who these people, of who the person is. And, you know, over the course of time and years, this is how I ended up basically developing my relationships with, uh, with team, with players, with, you know, any, anybody throughout the sport organizations. And um, I don't know if that's a really well thought out answer, but that's kind of how I went about it. That's great. I think that's awesome. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Through the years, players have, there have been a few constants for the Yankees. Uh, so you've, through the years, you, you've always spoke about this uh, when you made WFAN appearances. Uh, it seems as if your your relationship with uh, general manager Brian Cashman is, is very concrete, very reciprocal. Uh, he's always given you help through the years. He's been there throughout your 20 years covering the Yankees, you know, as the writer. Um so we've had a couple of managers through the years too. There was Joe Torre, there was Joe Drina, there was Aaron Boone. Luckily we haven't cycled through more managers, but uh, describe your relationships individually. Just touch upon, uh, you know, each one of those with those guys. Yeah. I mean, I, professional, I think they respect me because I respect them. I think the thing that I try to do, and, you know, I think a lot of the, the back and forth I get with fans sometimes about these guys is, is you know, um, you get frustrated because they don't haven't won championships. Right. So you're supposed to hold somebody's feet to the fire and do this. I mean, I can do, or, or whether it's lineup decisions or things like that, I can do that without coming from the premise that the guy who's making those decisions is an idiot, you know? And yeah. I, I think that you know, <laughs> I, and, and I get it because you know, the, the fan has a lot invested in it and you're so emotional that if you disagree with something, you're going to, you're going to let that emotion out. But when that comes across to me is like you're you're not factoring in that the person who made that decision knows a lot more about it than I do. So I, I always feel like I'm trying to ask the question because I know they know more about this than I do. So explain it to me. Okay. Listen, on the face of it, this move doesn't look very good to me. So what am I missing? Explain this to me. Tell me more. Tell me why you think it's a good move. And I I don't have to say it like, hey, you idiot, why did you do this? Right? And that's what talk radio is for, which is great. You can call in and say that stuff, but you're not saying it to the person, 
Right. I think you do it a lot differently because I can't just go on and say, man. Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. And now it's GEICO's Motorcycle Rules of the Road. Before you ride, make sure your mirrors are clean and adjusted properly. And if you're going on a group ride, make sure the lead biker knows where they're going. Uh, Ed, quick question. Where are you taking us? Oh, I have no idea. Well, am I the leader? <laughs> because I was uh, following that dude with the red helmet. Where, Where is he? And the rule to saving on motorcycle insurance is, in 15 minutes, GEICO could save you 15% or more. Hear that? That's the sound of someone trying to steal your crypto. Every day, thousands of hackers online are doing the same. That's why Arculus uses air-gapped cold storage technology to protect your assets. Using our keycard and wallet app to form a protective barrier, Arculus insulates you from hackers and puts control of your digital assets back in your hands. Order the first truly air-gapped crypto wallet at GetArculus.com. You know, this guy's an idiot. He's doing this and that. Like, I can actually, I, because I the job I have, I have access to the person making those decisions. And I'm going to get, you know, some, some uh, part of that information or some um, context to the decision. So my job is different in that regard. Um, different than a talk show host. Like you can go on and rant and rave about somebody, but remember, like I can go to the person, not maybe not every day for everything, but you know, a lot of the times I can. So I feel like that's, you know, it's just showing a certain amount of respect for the job, knowing that that person is qualified to do the job. Tell me, tell me what I don't know. Um, I, and, and it also comes from the people that I speak to around baseball, you know, like there are, there are people all over the sport who have told me how much they respect Brian Cashman and what he does and how he goes about it. So there are people who I've developed good relationships with and long friendships with around the sport who tell me these things. I'm not going to go into this like, well, he's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. It's like, no, you know, like there's a lot of smart people that I know who seem to think this guy knows what he's doing. So what am I missing? Tell me some information here to help me fill in this piece. And I, you know, I've had um, the good fortune actually the uh, of covering managers now who actually you knew his players. So, um, you know, and Joe Girardi and Aaron Boone. Uh, but I think the idea of, just building a relationship with them is just is professional courtesy. You know, I mean, we've had, I, I can challenge them on stuff and not have it be personal. I mean, I, I've had it happen with managers, general managers, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while you get into a little discussion and you know, it's, it's never personal. It's just about the, the job. And like I said, I just, I just like to go in with the idea with start with the basic premise of like giving them the, 
the benefit of the doubt of knowing more about it than I do. So help explain to me, like, listen, I don't get why you're, why you're still playing this guy every day, even though he's hitting 170. Tell me, what am I missing? You know, what's the reason? So things, something like that. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's all about the relationships and, you know, over 20 years, you and Cashman, the, the consistent two forces with the Yankees. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, listen, he, <laughs> I've got very little to do with anything. That's, yeah. trust me. So, I mean, it's always, it's, I, th- I always used to laugh when, uh, you know, you call in uh, to do a segment with, with Mike and the Mad Dog and, They'd be like, "Oh, Sweeney, you, you're you're jinxing us. You're the curse." Well, you're like, <laughs> but, but you know, aside from that, I'll tell you something funny. Like knowing, like again, knowing like the role and what Mike and Chris used to make really good radio by yelling and screaming a lot of times. Right. Something bothered them, right? <laughs> and they'd yell at me if something was bothering with the Yankees. But, but I remember specifically a lot of stuff about the 2004 ALCS loss to the Red Sox, where I was on, and they would. They had like, I, I remember the bit like four or five points where they said, what happened here? What happened there? Okay. And I would tell them, well, here's what Joe Torrey said about this. Here's what this guy said about that. Here's why they did this instead of that. Here's this guy wasn't available because of this or something like that. And they yell and scream at me like, like that's a dumb answer or this and that, or, but you know, that was part of the entertainment value of it. But the very next day when Joe Torrey is on with them, and they get a chance to ask him these questions, tell us what happened here, tell us what happened there. He's giving them the exact same information I gave him. And the and it's like, okay, Joe, next question. And they kind of move on. Like, you wouldn't yell at him. Right. And I get that. Like, that's like, Joe's earned that respect. And I was there for kind of, I was there to be yelled at. And I, I got that. I understood that. It was part of the show. Um, but it, it was funny for me to hear me give an answer that came directly from the manager's mouth and it would result in being screamed at when the manager gave that exact same answer to them a day later, it was just, Oh, okay. Thanks for telling us. <laughs> right. So unfortunately here, I got to ask you about a very infamous moment in, in Mike Francesa's career. You probably know mm-hmm. where I'm going with this. So no, nobody's ever brought it up to me before. <laughs> you are you're on with Mike, uh, doing your your typical weekly Yankee spot with him or whatever he, he wants you on, and you know allegedly he falls asleep. So obviously you're on the radio, you're on the phone, you don't know this. What is your reaction when you hang up the phone and your Twitter is probably <laughs> blowing up and you're like, what is going on? And then how did you how did you? cope with that and deal with that afterwards nothing actually happened for a couple of days it was i remember it was a monday off day and i was going to boston the next day on tuesday start of the series we were talking about a yankees red sox series in september and i honestly think it took about oddly enough this is how slowly things moved even back in 2012 it took a good two days for it to really become something like, I think it, it became something the next day on Tuesday and then Wednesday just totally blew up. Um, so it wasn't instantaneous. It was, it was kind of a slow crawl, which I find kind of amazing actually for 2012, but um, that was part of the deal. Listen, I've, I understand why everybody wants to bring it up 
I understand. I always tell people, I joke people, I, this, this is the first line in my obit, you know, like I'm not, <laughs> oh, no. you know, I'm, I'm not living this down. This is, this is the first line in my obituary. So, <laughs> but I have, in the years that Mike was asked about it all these times, he kind of started to bristle and gave a response of the idea that, you know, his long career this is a very long and successful career. This is the only thing anybody wants to talk to him about, ask him about, right? This is one of the things they keep bringing him up, bringing up with him. And I think part of the reason people did, you know, listen, Mike's an oversized personality. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that's, you have to be, if you're going to be on the air every day doing what he does, he's not the only one like that. There are plenty of people like that. So I think it kind of fed off of that personality. People want to just jab him with it more, right? And he got annoyed by it. And I don't blame him because the thing that I kept coming back to was that people want to keep pinning this on me too. No way. And I, well, well, listen, I mean, for my first reaction was this doesn't make me look very good either. You know, I mean, like I'm talking and someone fell asleep. Is this, is this really like, is this going to be on my resume tape? Probably not. But I, I started to have the same reaction to it as he did after a while, because as many times as people bring it up to me in interviews or on the street, you know, it happens. I've come, I turned 50 last year, right? So I sit there and I say to myself, I've been doing what I do a really long time too. And, you know, I'm not, listen, I'm, I don't have any, delusions you know of i i know my place in my media world and my radio station everything like that but i have had a long career i would call it a successful career and it's still that's the one thing people just keep wanting to bring up to me all the time so i was like i understand that reaction that mike has now again it comes from a different place because of the way people view mike but I, I want to answer people the same way nowadays. I say, listen, I've, I've, had a, I've covered the Yankees now for 21 years. I've worked in New York for almost 30 years. I've been on the radio for almost 40 years. I kind of, you know, I've done this a while. I've got a lot of cool things that I've seen and done. We don't have to keep asking me about that one. Yep. I totally agree. Ratings, resumes, longevity, and the McMahon, as, as Francesca uh, put it. You know, and that's his thing, like I said, and he's he's on a completely different level, you know? I mean, yeah. it, all, it, only, it only became a big story because of him. I, 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 I don't think anybody's ever, and I know, to, to point that to you. It was video, whatever. I mean, and, you know, that was, as, as we learned what going viral meant, it went viral, you know? Right. But, like, he's on a completely different right. level no, than I am, man. He's, yeah. he's a legendary figure in our industry. Right. Um, and he's right to a certain degree when he talks about his career in that manner compared to one moment. And I kind of say, you know what? I, I kind of like the way he thinks of that, to be honest with you. And because I want to say the same thing. All right. You should. Uh, we do, we definitely miss you with Joe and Evan. I mean, that anything yeah. that was always radio magic. So you we, like that one? That was fun. Yeah, I I think we got to get Joe on your podcast at some point. I don't know what the time. I will have to catch up with him. Like, he's, be, he's loving yeah, golf he, right he now. Probably. Phone and, you know, he can just pick up the phone and uh, do his show. 
Um, <laughs> he wants really. He was, uh, he, he was fun. Absolutely. So last last question here because we kind of touched on it earlier. Uh, you know, you, you do TV now. You do stuff with SNY and LB Network. Uh, how did those opportunities come about? And was there any hesitation for you since you always did radio? You always wanted to do radio, and then you know these two new networks launch, and they want to bring you on to do some hits. I just think you know as. Um, I don't know how it happened, to be honest with you. I mean, I was always just a radio guy, you know. Um, in 2001, my first year doing the Yankees, I remember Duke Castiglione was doing New York One at the time. And he asked me to come in one, one I, I forget, one Saturday or Sunday to do his New York One sports show. And I think that was the first time anybody ever asked me to do any of those. Um, but you see what the TV content is now, you have a lot of different people talking about a subject and you're looking for people who have, you know, um, you know, who have a certain area of expertise and you bring them on to talk about one subject. And that's kind of what started happening with me. And I mean, it's just a lot of, uh, it's a lot, just a lot of different things I've been able to do. Um, I did some stuff for Yes Network in, in the early days, 020304. Um, I'm in a lot of their early Yankeeography things that they produced. I also got my friend, uh, Steve Fortunato, my first year, 2001, uh, Steve Fortunato was the, was, uh, producing the world series highlight video. And so I sat down and did an interview with him, like as one of the voices, you know, as they narrate and tell the story of the world series for the, you know, 60 minute video, or whatever, I'm one of the people in that, um, and I would, probably would have been in a lot more if the Yankees had won, you know, the Diamondbacks video now. So I'm not in it that often. Um, but they put me in a couple of those sh shows, those features. So I think that just got my, you know, my name and face out there to that. And, you know, I was a good person for a soundbite on different, different pieces. And, um, you know, and then, you know, SNY launched and started covering all sports, all the New York sports. And that was, that was pretty important. And so as, as they're known as the Mets channel, they still cover all the other sports. And, you know, they came to me about, you know, providing Yankees uh, content for them. Um, so, and I've, I've done that now for, uh, I think that's 13 or 14 years there. Uh, MLB network, I've been able to do some correspondent work for them too, since, uh, since they launched. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's been, it's been pretty cool to, uh, you know, it's just a different avenue for, uh, for me to get some stuff out there and have some other people watch and notice. And my parents can watch when I'm on an MLB network, you know, cause they don't live in New York, so they can watch me on when I'm on that, uh, other people from around the country. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's just a little different thing, a little plat new platforms as you were talking about before, you know, uh, lots of different things to, to get your voice out there. So I kind of enjoy that. A small town PA kid did, uh, big five tool things. And uh, we thought this interview was really cool. I don't know about five tool, but I just, I always like to, I, you know, <laughs> listen, I'm in no way comparing myself to him, but I, I, at one point, maybe about a year or two ago, I started to think about this idea that, you know, Derek Jeter was from a small town in Michigan and, you know, kind of became <laughs> like a New York person. Right. Well, I, you know, I just know that there are a lot of people at my radio station who are all from New York, you know, and there are a couple of people like Steve Summers from San Francisco, Eddie Coleman's from Boston, Susan Wallace from Boston, but like big city people. Right. I'm from a little small town that 
um, you know, people from my town don't generally go off to big cities anywhere. So I wasn't sure that I could survive here. I, I distinctly remember coming to FAN in 1993 and saying, all right, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to give this two years and see what I can do about it. And if I, you know, if I need to pivot, if I need to go home or do something like else after that, then, then, uh, then we'll see what happens. And luckily I, I enjoyed it and they kept adding a few more things to my plate along the way to make it, you know, more exciting for me. And, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have predicted this was the roadmap that I had taken. I'm, I'm glad it's worked out the way it has. And it landed you here on, uh, you know, I'm right with us. So we are super appreciative that you gave us some extra time uh, for anybody who's listening to this, go listen to 30 with Marty uh, Sweeney's podcast. Uh, tune into the fan. If you're in New York, you know, periodically try to listen to him. Uh, Nothing better when Sweeney and Eddie Coleman team up for some, from, for some baseball talk shows. I mean, that's, that's yeah. just the top notch stuff. right? I don't now. know. I don't know when you're <laughs> posting or airing this for people, but we we're on, we've been on every Sunday in March. Uh, doing some baseball shows. I, I assume we'll get together again probably next off season because we kind of split now once the season starts and we're, we're not together uh, very often. But uh, you'll hear us from time to time. Uh, and if I can also, you know, we've also, also started these other daily podcasts that I don't know if they'll be daily during the season. They'll, 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 be, they'll be frequent, but um, just really specific, shorter Yankees and Mets-related ones that, uh, that we both do and enjoy too. So hopefully people can find those too. Absolutely terrific. And what Nick and I do here is we always give our guests the last word. So Sweeney, thank you again for hopping on doing this with us. Uh, if there's anything else you would like to share, if there's anything else you would like to promote, I'm sure you promoted everything, but uh, go right ahead. Thanks again. For no, that's it. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate you, you know, you diving in, you guys did some pretty good research into my story. So I think you knew you asked some of those questions as if you knew the answers already. So uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for leading me down the path. Sweeney, we really appreciate it. So that's going to do it here for this episode of You Know I'm Right for our very special guest, Sweeney Murdy, and for my coach, Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. Grand Canyon University, a Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering over 200 engaging programs online. GCU invests in high demand areas such as nursing, teaching, and the sciences. Students engage with faculty who become partners in your success. GCU's online students received over $100 million in scholarships in 2020. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you qualify for.